You are listening to National Security Law Today. It's National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Yvette. It's the full swing of fall, which means for most of the country, they're looking forward to the return of pumpkin spice everything. But for all of us law nerds, we know that it means a return to the bench for the United States Supreme Court. To help us understand the current docket with a specific focus on national security law, we are pleased to welcome back Professor Jaffer. Jamil Jaffer serves as founder and executive director of the National Security Institute and as an assistant professor of law and director of the National Security Law and Policy Program at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. And that's where he teaches classes on counterterrorism, intelligence, surveillance, cybersecurity, and other national security matters. He also teaches a summer course in Padua, Italy, with U.S. Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. Nice work if you can get it. (laughs) Jamil also currently serves as Senior Vice President for Strategy Partnerships and Corporate Development at IronNet Cybersecurity. He served as a law clerk to Justice Gorsuch with the United States Supreme Court. He also served on the leadership team of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee as Chief Counsel and Senior Advisor. He had a number of posts in the Bush II White House, and he received his BA at UCLA an MA from the U.S. Naval War College and his JD from the University of Chicago. We are pleased and esteemed to have him. And most importantly, he is a member of our very own ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Maybe the most impressive of all of his very impressive accolades. It's been way too long, Jamil. Hey, Yvette. It's glad, I'm glad to be back. Please don't stay away from us this long next time. <laughs> I will I will try my best not to, and I appreciate you having me back. It's always a hoot when you're here, and we're able to get some laughs in and get to the meat of the casework, so it's, uh, it's always a great time to have you. Let's start off with FBI v. Bazaga, which is a FISA case. Um, we have had numerous podcasts on FISA, but uh, just really briefly, you all should recall that FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, uh, sets up a special court to hear applications by the government to authorize the surveillance of foreign agents in espionage or terrorism cases. So section 1806 C and D require the federal or state government to provide notice to an aggrieved person that it intends to introduce information obtained under the statute in proceedings against that person. But 1806 F of FISA establishes in-camera and ex-party procedures to adjudicate the attorney general's assertion that a typical adversarial hearing would harm national security. So is that is that a good laydown, Jamil? Yeah, no, I think that describes sort of what's going on in this case. You know, uh, what's what, what's happening is you've got three uh, Muslim plaintiffs, including uh, the name plaintiff uh, Sheikh Yasser Fazaga, um, who claim that you know they were attending religious services at the Islamic Center of Irvine, and they allege that the FBI had used a confidential informant to conduct a covert surveillance program for over a year. Um, at the Islamic Center, based solely on their on their religious identity, they brought claims, you know, First Amendment claims, Fourth Amendment claims, Equal Protection Clause, right, a whole series of claims, including under FISA. So what's interesting here, right, is that the Attorney General, uh, the, the the federal, the Justice Department asserted the state secrets privilege, um, and moved to dismiss some of these claims, in, in particular the discrimination claims based on state secrets. They didn't move though to dis- to displace the FISA and Fourth Amendment claims on the state secrets privilege. The district court dismissed all the claims, uh, but one under the state secrets privilege, a common law privilege. And the Ninth Circuit reversed saying, look, you know, the district court sh- uh, should have reviewed the stuff in par- ex parte and in camera under the FISA procedures. 
to determine whether it was unlawful under that authority. And the question was, right, does this specific provision in FISA displace the common law state secrets privilege for the purposes of, of that particular claim? And so, you know, the court uh, has engaged the question. We'll see where they go with this. It's interesting because, you know, there was an impassioned dissent uh, from the denial of rehearing on Bonk by Judge Patrick Bumate, who argued that the nice decision was incorrect, uh, endangers national security. And so he was joined by eight other judges of the Ninth Circuit. So pretty big dispute about the rehearing on Bonk that I think has sort of teed this case up for the court to look into and, and dig into. So I think the key, the key things to look at if you're if you're a court watcher trying to figure out what might happen here is go read that Bumate dissent and see what you make of that. I think that'll give you some guide as to as to how this case is going to get be fought in the court here in the in, in the Supreme Court. So let's just like rewind for just two seconds. What is yeah. the common law state secrets privilege? Yeah, so the idea uh, of the state secrets privilege is there are certain classified matters uh, that the government should not even have to acknowledge are classified or acknowledge the, the, the fact of it taking place or this, that this thing happened, right? They simply should be able to assert that what's what's taking place here is uh, in dangers of national security and that based on based on their on that assertion that the court should dismiss the claim altogether, right? It's simply uh, that the matter cannot be litigated in federal court. It's a hotly debated question because it goes to the power of the courts to evaluate claims of the government, right? And in a lot of cases, the court will assess on its own. It will take classified material and, and make an assessment. The question, though, here is FISA has a procedure for aggrieved parties and for resolving whether classified material can be introduced in a post-FISA surveillance criminal proceeding. And so the question here is, should that procedure have been used or should the court apply the state secrets privilege and whatever whatever the appropriate evaluation is under that under that common law doctrine in this case? Is it displaced by the statute with respect to those claims? And so that, I think, is the key question in play. It's less about the core state secrets privilege, although that is in play because if it applies, it applies properly here, right? If FISA doesn't displace it, then the court, then the question is, did the Ninth Circuit go too far in ordering the district court to engage in this in-camera review? So let's just like get really down to the to the nub of it, right? So yeah. for Fazaga, what is the difference between, you know, if the state secrets privilege applies versus the FISA statute? Yeah. If the statute applies, then the court is obligated to engage in an in-camera review of the evidence under the procedures and legal standards outlined in FISA. If the state secrets privilege applies, then the court engages in the sort of standard state secrets assessment, right, which doesn't necessarily require an ex parte in-camera review of the kind envisioned by FISA. So more procedural protections in place for the defendant or for the, for the litigant in this case, uh, Fazaga, under a FISA approach, right, less the state secrets approach, more just broad dismissal. Think about it as the difference between sort of a 12B6 dismissal versus a summary judgment motion, right? Do you get certain procedural protections and certain sort of discovery or certain assessment by the judge under FISA like you would? Again, it's not perfect because even the standard under FISA is fairly broad and flexible for the judge to apply, right? It just requires a certain amount of review that under state secrets privilege wouldn't necessarily be required. And so I think at the end of the day, you get certain procedural protections and that's what's at play for Fazaga here. Which is, I mean, it's pretty interesting, especially since FISA is so controversial because part of the reason is that you, as, as an accused, don't get to know about the surveillance until it's done. And a lot of times it's like the FISA court will evaluate whether or not there can be you know, a wiretapping 
Um, but there isn't an ability for, you know, for a defendant to prevent that. And so now you're kind of in like under the statute, like how are we able to protect people from government overreach is essentially like what some of these procedures are set up to address. Right. That's the larger question, right, uh, under FISA, right, is, is if you're a target of FISA surveillance, right, do you really have a remedy if you have a problem with the surveillance, right? The normal, in the normal surveillance, in the typical Title III surveillance context, what we say is, look, you get to litigate that surveillance when you're prosecuted, right? You get to litigate the validity of that surveillance. Under FISA, however, the vast majority of surveillance undertaken under FISA doesn't result in a federal court prosecution. And so then the question becomes, how do you litigate the validity of that surveillance? In this case, the defense are alleging we were surveilled under FISA, right? And the question is, right, is there a valid claim? And can the government say, look, we don't, we're, we can't confirm or deny whether you under FISA surveillance, right? And then state secrets gives them an out. Or does, do they get the benefit of these procedures and it's ex parte and camera review under the FISA statute based on a simple allegation of FISA surveillance? Well, thank you for walking us through that case. Check out the oral arguments in Fazaga on November 8th. So the next case of interest on the docket is United States versus Zubeda, which was argued on October 6th. So the question presented is whether the Court of Appeals erred when it rejected the United States' assertion of the state's secret privilege based on the court's own assessment of potential harms to national security um, and required discovery to proceed further under 28 U.S.C. Section 1782, A, against former CIA contractors on matters concerning alleged clandestine CA activities. So these questions presented for all the law students out there, they really are that complex. Can we just uh, find out a little bit of background on the case and then we'll dive into the innards, Jamil? Yeah, so, you know, Abu Zubaydah, uh, you know, is an associate of Osama bin Laden. The, at times, the government has sort of expressed different views about what his role was. Uh, the generally accepted view historically has been that Abu Zubaydah was a facilitator for al-Qaeda. Uh, he was one of the early detainees in the war on terror. Now there's some dispute, by the way, about whether in fact he played any role in al-Qaeda, how involved he was, what did he used to be involved? Is he no longer involved in the time he was captured? Whatever, right? Putting aside sort of the, the debate about Abu Zubaydah himself, um, he was one of the early detainees who was subjected to what, what some people call torture, what some people call enhanced interrogation. You know. Putting the sort of one side, the debate about whether it was or was not torture, what happened to Abu Zubaydah, right? Everyone sort of agrees in the general sense that he was subjected to some amount of enhanced interrogation um, at the hands of the CIA. And the, the way this case came up, though, is interesting because there's a Polish investigation into uh, the treatment of Abu Zubaydah. And uh, in this case, Abu Zubaydah is, has sort of intervened and is seeking to force the government to permit the Polish prosecutors to obtain evidence from these two government contractors, the two uh, individuals who are alleged to have been the architects of the enhanced interrogation program. Um, and they want, they want them to testify as to what happened. And in particular, the question is, can they testify? Uh, and the question is, what, what do they be asked to testify about, right? Abu Zubaydah's team says, we're not going to ask him anything about what, at the oral argument, so we're not going to ask him anything about what happened whether it was in Poland, right? We're simply going to ask him what happened, right? What was, how was he treated and the like? And we'll make our, the rest of our case about whether it happened in Poland or not through extra, ex, external evidence, right? What date did you engage in these activities with him and what exactly happened? And then we'll use other extraneous evidence about the dates to show planes were flying in and out of Poland and, and Abu Zubaydah was there at the time. And that's how the Polish court uh, is able to explain that this happened here in Poland and we're able to bring this prosecution, right? 
um, or bring this or conduct this investigation. So the debate, though, is whether the government permitting these individuals to testify would reveal and undermine the government's state secrets assertion that we can't confirm or deny whether there was a black site in Poland, right? Whether we engage in these activities and simply having them testify in a Polish investigation would sort of be a government and to the fact that there was that there were these activities that took place and that they were on these dates and that these government contracts were involved would be sufficient to create a government sort of admission that the activities took place in Poland. And so that's what's at stake here, right? Can the government intervene in this case um, and prevent the, uh, assert the state secrets privilege to say any discussion by these government contractors of what happened or didn't happen at this alleged black site would tend to reveal that the alleged allegations are, are accurate and that they happened in Poland, et cetera, et cetera, and that that our allies rely on, on, on agreements that we make with them that we're not going to talk about where these activities took place and the like. And so that alone is enough to, to get it out, get it out from out from under the court's jurisdiction. So that's what's in play here. Uh, it does seem, based on oral arguments that took place uh, earlier this month, uh, the court does seem somewhat skeptical. Uh, most of the justices did seem somewhat skeptical of the defense's assertion that that these government contracts could be made to testify. The problem for the government, though, is that in other proceedings, these government contracts have testified about what happened to detainees. And so the question is, why is this one different? Um, and that's, I think, what's in play here. Well, thank you so much for walking us through that case. We will be on the lookout for uh, how the case comes out uh, at the Supreme Court. And next case on the docket, so to speak, for our guest is Tel V. Garland. This is this is kind of interesting. This is a case about a non-citizen checking a box on a Georgia driver's license application indicating that he was a citizen, which was the reason that the Board of Immigration Appeals denied him his application for lawful permanent res- residency. So, you know, this is a national security issue because it's a, it's a citizenship question. What are the issues here? Yeah, you know, the this is one of those really uh, sort of in the weeds, you know, BIA, the Bureau of Immigration Appeals case, Board of Immigration Appeals cases. Um, and the question about whether the court, in this case, the district court, uh, had jurisdiction to review the factual findings of the factual challenge, the, cha- the, the aliens challenge, right, to the findings of the BIA. You know, and so what happened here was the BIA ultimately determined that he was ineligible for discretionary relief because he falsely represented himself as a citizen. He checked the citizen box. Um, on this Georgia driver's license, right? The circuit court held uh, that he would that the court did lack jurisdiction, right? And as a result, there was sort of no opportunity. And so the question becomes now: Can in fact federal courts, right, use their jurisdiction to review this uh, ineligibility question? Right. This is again one of these in the weeds immigration questions. The the connection to national security is that it involves you know a a individual uh, that was being charged for removal, but he was determined to be removable because he hadn't been authorized to enter the country, right? He had different claims about whether he was, why he should be allowed to remain here and the like. And so the debate here is whether it was immaterial and whether the courts now have the ability to get in, in between the administrative process, right, taking place. This is an interesting one because, as we know, Justice Gorsuch has expressed views on the role of Federal agencies and their own, their own, uh, in, you know, sort of evaluating them, themselves. It's the question is, does this turn into a case of agency discretion, and and how much deference we give to that, or is this purely a jurisdictional stripping question, right? Which is typically, I think, what most people have thought about this as historically. Um, and so we'll see what the court does with this one. Excellent. 
Um, we've also got some NATSEC adjacent cases on the docket, including USV Sarnayev, um, which involves yeah. the infamous 2013 domestic terrorism incident at the Boston Marathon. The QPs in that case involve procedural issues at the trial court level. We also have Babcock v. Kijikazi. <laughs> A lot of uh, um, interesting names on the, on the docket this session. And Babcock is going to hopefully resolve a question that has divided five courts of appeal regarding how civil service pensions for dual status military technician service should be treated on the Social Security Act. We're talking about our National Guard service members and they're in a yeah. certain status and how their payments should be um, to be treated. And uh, finally, we've got New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, which is the latest in the Second Amendment cases involving the personal right to bear arms. And it considers whether the government can prohibit ordinary law-abiding citizens from carrying handguns outside the home for self-defense. Um, I think it's fair to mention this one in light of implications that more widely armed populists would have for um, issues that are squarely in the national security realm, everything from yeah. exercising the First Amendment to uh, the right to protest election security. So we're still uh, building our understanding and appreciation for national security law on the court yeah. case by case by case. Any thoughts? Well, you know, Zornayev uh, is an interesting case uh, because it involves the death penalty, right? In this case, the circuit court held that the district court should have asked additional questions of the jurors uh, with respect to uh, whether they had seen and heard media coverage about the Zornayev came obviously the Boston Marathon bombing, a lot of media coverage around it. And the Court of Appeals essentially vacated the death penalties imposed by the lower court because they didn't, the court during its voir dire did not get into the question of, or deep enough into the question uh, about the pretrial media coverage and how much they'd have been exposed to. And then the second question uh, in play in this case, and then the bulk of, interestingly, the bulk of the oral argument in the Zarnayev case focused on this latter issue, right, about whether Zarnayev, Zokar Zarnayev's brother, Tamerlan, right, whether uh, evidence of his prior criminal activity uh, should have been brought before the court. In that case, the district court determined that the, the evidence would have confused the jury and not been relevant enough to the proceeding that it was that the potential for confusion would be overridden by the introduction of the evidence. And so the bulk of the Supreme Court oral argument on this question was about that latter issue. But to me, the, the more interesting one is that former issue, this question of whether the Court of Appeals was right to completely wipe out the death penalty simply on the basis that it had a dispute about the way that the court ran voir dire. You know, what's interesting in particular about this one is that Attorney General Merrick Garland has made clear that the government is not going to be implementing the death penalty, even if it's imposed. And so, you know, one of the, at least one of the justices is asking the question, what's the, you know, what's the end game here? You're arguing to have the death penalty reimposed. The, the Court of Appeals uh, got rid of it and you're already having to reimpose, but you're not going to actually, ex you're not going to execute on it uh, given the moratorium. So what gives? And so I think it's an interesting question and, uh, and we'll see how this thing plays out. But the bulk of oral argument didn't focus, unfortunately, on, well, unfortunately for me, because I was more interested in that former question. I focus on the latter question about introduction of this this other crime and whether it would be you know whether the court correctly assessed confusion versus probative value um, as to Zokar Zanayev's claim that his brother is the one who really was the was the person driving this thing and his prior crime demonstrates that he was a driving force and it wasn't really Zokar who should who should get the death penalty. That's really interesting. I think the Babcock case is a little bit way down in the weeds for our audience, but would love to hear your thoughts on the um, New York State Rifle case, Jamel. Yeah, well, so this is a really interesting case because, you know, it involves the question in New York about whether these folks who wanted to get a permit to carry a firearm in public, they've been rejected a number of times. Um, and ultimately, New York said, look, you haven't shown proper cause 
to be given the ability to carry a firearm, a concealed handgun uh, in public. And so the question, you know, that's really at play in this case is uh, how far does Heller go, right? A prior case in the Second Circuit, Kachalski essentially said, look, uh, Heller was about uh, the right to have a firearm in your home, right? That's what it's holding is limited to. It's not about carrying firearms in public. When it comes to carrying firearms in public, uh, and given New York's interest in regulating uh, handgun safety and the like, it's fine to limit sealed carry of, of firearms in public to only those people who can demonstrate proper cause. And the question is, you know, here, what constitutes proper cause and, and does the requirement contravene uh, Heller's core holding about the individual right to own and possess and, and, and maybe even carry in public concealed a, a firearm? And so, you know, this will be a test for how far the court is willing to extend or read Heller to apply, right? Clearly, the, the Second Circuit has a narrow view of Heller. They apply that in Kachalski. They're now applying that Kachalski precedent here in your state rifle association. One of the interesting thing, elements about this in the, in the briefs is um, there are briefs that suggest that the application of this rule has unfairly burdens minorities and people who have less political power to get uh, the ability to carry uh, concealed firearms in public. So that's an interesting dynamic of some of the briefing in this case. Again, I'll leave it to I'll leave it to your audience to debate whether that's right or wrong, whether there's there's merit to that argument. But it's an interesting element of this whether there is a, a disparate uh, application or an inappropriate application of this proper cause requirement. But ultimately, this is about how broadly Heller ought to be read. I do think there's an argument for the proposition that Heller on its on its own face, while while the facts did involve firearms and homes, the language in Heller speaks much more broadly. And so uh, I think there's an open, uh, open dispute here about whether, open debate here about whether, whether and what Heller means in this context. Well, thank you so much, Jamil, again. That's all the time we have for now. And we really appreciate you coming back to share your insights. And thank you out there for listening. Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep bringing you national security law content every week. So please be sure to hit the subscribe button on your app of choice. If you have topics you want us to cover or would like us to leave us some feedback, find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at AmericanBar.org. And don't forget that the lawyers hosting and appearing on this podcast are here in their individual capacities and not on behalf of any agency or firm. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 